And you have to be motivated and keep going. Otherwise, we are literally in a sport where people are judging you and telling you that that's not good enough every day. It takes a really thick skin and stay the hell off social media for the most part, because there will be just as many people telling you that if you don't have the fanciest clothes or the nicest horse or the nicest tack, that you can't do it. We're proof to show that all three of us can. on the rail at a jog please on the rail at a jog welcome back to another episode of on the rail podcast today we have three special guests quite a few more than what we usually have but we have some lovely ladies that kind of do it themselves and they're great amateurs so we wanted to bring them on and without further ado, I'll let all three of them kind of introduce themselves and you guys can pick who wants to go first and <laughs> jump the gun. I guess I can go first. I'm Megan Seehofer. Grew up in Kansas and I call myself a DIY-ish amateur because I don't do it all myself. I go get lessons and, you know, do have a trainer on the side-ish, I guess you can say, when I have problems. And I currently live in central Missouri. I'm Lindsay McLean. I live in Altoona, Iowa. Same as Megan, DIY amateur. I don't have a you know a specific trainer I work with, but when I need help, I will seek out you know that assistance. But otherwise, yeah, just show mainly the paint horses. I'm Sabrina Seoffer. I'm Megan's younger sister. I live in Iowa, and I'm a DIYer. My horses live with my sister in Missouri, so I don't see them as much as Lindsay and Megan see the horses. And I also get lessons when we get to a spot or Megan is my eyes on the ground. So all three of these ladies are, of course, they all show APHA, which is what's near and dear to my heart. But there are three ladies that I have always looked up to, which I say always, they're not that much older than me, let's be real. But all three of them are very accomplished and just good, friendly, dedicated individuals that I you know, have always admired. So all of you are very accomplished. And so out of all the titles you won, or maybe you could talk a little bit about like your success in the show pen, even at the highest level, but what stands out as the most meaningful to you individually? Probably for me, like the 2019, I was reserve in the showmanship. I've won a couple of titles. So obviously all are very special, but the showmanship being reserved in the showmanship, I think was my biggest moment. I guess I'd always kind of just been stuck in that eight to 10 place range. And that year I really just decided I wanted to get out of that rut. And I was like, what do I need to do differently? And so really started, you know, studying other people's forms and things they did and started running myself, which I think made a big difference that year. So I think that one just was the one I like, just really was like, I wanted it so bad and I worked so hard for it. And I feel like that's the one that really just means the most, even though it wasn't the, it wasn't first place of a second, but I'll still take it because my friend Megan was first. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so yeah, that was, that's yeah. My yeah. I kind of have the same year as Lindsay. I, uh, the, the 2019, I won the amateur showmanship and I am not a young amateur in the young amateur group. And so it was really cool. And I'm also not a 
I'm on the thicker side for showmanship, Mm -hmm. put it that way. And so to win that, it was, you know, pretty awesome. Not only that, but the prelims, I went first. I was first to go, won the prelims and came back was second to go in the finals and ended up winning the finals. So to me, that was kind of like the culmination of everything. I just didn't sneak into the finals and then win it. So I felt like, you know, I'd worked hard for that. So that was definitely one of the highlights for me. How cool is it for you guys to be world and reserve world champion in the same year? It was, was very awesome. cool. Yeah. And we showed, <laughs> uh, there was quite a few people from our area in the top 10 that year. Mm-hmm. And I remember one girl saying, if this doesn't tell you how hard it is in the Midwest, like that all of these people, we show together all the time. It's tough for us all the time. So that was really cool to just, to, we show together all the time. And then to end like that was, it was really exciting for me. I was crying <laughs> for sure. <laughs> super cool. So I guess I have three that are my favorites. So one of my favorites is actually 2019 when I won showmanship again with Fergie. So Megan and I both won world championships with showmanship with Fergie that year in the amateur walk trot and her in the classic amateur. So we kind of went back to back on that. So that's my favorite showmanship. (laughs) My favorite horsemanship is 2018 with Stifler. I'd won in 2015 and then when he had an injury and was out the 2016 season when we came back in 2017 I added a accidental side pass to my horsemanship pattern so coming back and finally in his final year of competition being able to win that with him because that's my favorite class with him and then last year in hunt seat equitation our green three-year-old that Megan has done all the work on Watson I was able to win the amateur walk trot hunt seat equitation which is a pretty big deal because I am a lot on the thicker side and for specifically equitation and horsemanship that really does I think have more of effect than in showmanship but to be on a green three-year-old and step out and be able to do that one that Megan had done all the work on he hasn't been to a trainer only Megan myself and the colt breaker have actually ridden him for more than just a few minutes so that was really special yeah I know all three of you have Accomplished so much, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, which is why I said before that I look up to you guys and particularly in the pattern events, which is where I find to be most challenging for myself. So um, (laughs) how long have you guys shown or I guess like we didn't really touch on it in your introductions, but how long have you guys been showing? So I started 4-H when I was nine and that was when we first, you know, got introduced to horses. My parents didn't have them growing up. My mom's dad had them before kids and after kids, but not while she was growing up. And so my grandpa had horses then and loaned us one for 4-H. So I've been doing it since I was nine. Didn't get into the breed level. Probably we did a little bit when I was, I think, one or two years of 13 and under. And then from there on have shown the paints. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm pretty much the same. I think it's been a while ago. I think like eight or nine, primarily we started, we did open shows in central Kansas. And in fact, started out with a, my dad had a cow horse in the pasture. And Sabrina is actually the one that got us into the horses. I really wasn't all that interested until she got interested in it. And we started with speed events. And then We didn't have a pleasure horse per se, but these open shows, they had all their pleasure stuff at the beginning of the show and then the speed in the afternoon. And so dad would make us go home to go to church. So we'd go to the horse show on Saturday, 
come home, have to go to church and then go back on Sunday after church. And so I convinced him to get us a pleasure horse so we didn't have to go to church on Sunday. During the <laughs> it all started. <laughs> and then that pleasure horse was a paint horse, a three-year-old paint horse that at the time when we bought her, we didn't know she was pregnant. She'd been exposed to her full brother. So we bought her in the next year. We're like, why is she getting so fat? And she had a baby. We so anyway, but <laughs> so I was a paint, a registered paint horse. And then we got into the paint shows. I think when I, we were, I was in 14, 18 and 1994 was the first year we showed paints, I believe. So that's the round, a, a long story for how we got into it. <laughs> Perfect. And Megan kind of kept showing throughout. When I went to undergrad, I showed a little bit my first year and decided with my science background and the labs. And I played a little bit of softball in college for a first year. Like it was just too much. And then I went to grad school. So I kind of took a long hiatus. So I showed a little bit of paints. So I actually set out paints my last year in youth and then got back into it when I moved back to the Midwest. Megan finally convinced me to get back in the pen showing open halter in 2010. So she could go change into her Huntsy clothes quicker. <laughs> on the break and have more time in the break. So that is how she got me back showing. And then the amateur walk trot program came in in 2011. And I've been showing that ever since. So I know we'll get into this like a lot more throughout our conversation. But if you're talking like big picture, totally, since you all started from the very grassroots beginner level, how would you say you've gotten from the beginner status to now being world champions? Like what's that overall feeling journey been like for you? Hard work dedication yeah. a lot of i don't know two step forward 10 steps back a lot of reassessing i mean i think for at least my sister and i when we started out my dad always said when we got into it he said when it's no fun anymore we're quitting and that's what he told us as youth and that's kind of been you know my sisters and i mantra as we go through it if it's not fun we're not doing it meaning that can be Horses, which I've never got to that point. It can be a horse show. It can be, you know, anything like that. And I think the biggest thing is for me, as least I know everyone has at least me sometimes. Envy is not the right word, but you know, like you look at someone, you're like, yeah, you just really, you know, you want to emulate them. You know what I mean? And you know, you have to. I guess I've learned the older I get, it's very cool to watch someone and you know want to strive to be like them, but you know, you can only do you. And so I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of setbacks and steps forward, but you have to continue to persevere as yourself. And I think I've learned that as I've gotten older in this industry and not let the outside forces, lots can be a lot of different things, outside forces drag you down into a hole. Yeah, I agree with Megan, like just a lot of time in the barn, a lot of dedication. There are those times where you feel like, you're getting nowhere or you're not seeing the progress you want or whatever, but like doing it yourself, you just have to have that stamina and dedication and to see it through. There are hard days. Like there's no lying there. And and then you're by yourself. A lot of those times you just, you got to stay focused on what your goals are. And like, for me, that's not always like winning a certain thing. That's like, we're going to master these pivots or, you know, we're going to master these transitions things like that to just keep you motivated. And like, when you see that progress for me, that has kept me going, I guess, is watching those horses progress and change through the time. But yeah, just lots of perseverance. Watching other people has helped me a ton. Like back in the day, you 
at the world show, I'd just go sit out at the outdoor pen and watch as long as I had time. I'd go watch warmups. And if you ride in the night, that is the best time to listen and watch and learn from people. So taking advantage of all those things, I still do it today. We used to have a huge seven day run show down here, very close to my home. And every day they would have an AQHA professional horseman do a little clinic, just them by themselves with a horse. Those were so informational. Like I learned so much from those things. They were usually judges. So you got their perspective or a training tip or things like that. Just making time for those things has really helped me progress and go from that nine-year-old with the 4-H horse that I, you know, fell off of my first county fair to (laughs) to today. (laughs) I would say definitely staying with it, reaching out. Don't be afraid to look at different things. I struggled when I came back with diagonals. There was many, many... And Megan, this is literally what Megan said to me. If you're okay missing your diagonal neck, that's fine. I'm not sure how to tell you how to pick it up. So I would come down. I work four tens generally. So I would come down Friday mornings. Megan would be working in less sterling expression, stifflers of heart. I'd throw the hunt seat saddle on and we would post and post and post until I could fill it. Megan also then would come out and call random diagonals. I watched dressage videos to see if I felt it a different way. There's always a different way. And NSBA world is one of my favorite places to go watch the practice pens. I have seen the most unique training and different things that I normally don't see. Someone had a showmanship horse sticking a shoulder out and they took their leg on the other side to tap it back in. And I was like, I can't move that way, but it's an interesting concept. Just always, someone's going to have your same problem. Watch. Also, I've asked, I've stopped. I'm Megan says the social butterfly of the family. I'm not afraid to stop someone and be like, hey, why are you doing that? Or, hey, I have this problem. Do you have a second? No one has ever been, I mean, I don't do it when they're in the middle of schooling a client or working on something, but most people are willing to help if you ask. And if not, seek out lessons. I can't say enough. We take lessons from Kendra Weiss. She's phenomenal. We've also had other trainers throughout the years help us back from our 4-H days. There's all kinds of resources watching. I like to watch the Ride the Patterns for the Quarter Horse World Show. You learn a lot there as well. And you have to be motivated and keep going. Otherwise, we are literally in a sport where people are judging you and telling you that that's not good enough every day. It takes a really thick skin and stay the hell off social media for the most part, because there will be just as many people telling you that if you don't have the fanciest clothes or the nicest horse or the nicest tack, that you can't do it. We're proof to show that all three of us can. Very good points. It's always curious to me, too, because as you were saying, social media is so toxic sometimes that I feel like in our world now, finding any beginners to start is hard just because of that right there is they just see all of the bad. But on that note, with you guys doing the DIY so long and going out to get lessons, is there anyone that like sticks out to you that you maybe always find yourself going back to to get help or maybe helps you out the most? Is there anyone that sticks out to you guys? For me over the years, I've used Jess Berganzel for help. He's always been super, super helpful for me. Usually when I need help, it's because I have a problem. And so a lot of trainers don't want to like jump into that because they're like, I know she's not going to be here very long. You know, why do I want to put a lot of time and effort? But he has always been super willing. Unfortunately, I like, it's not something I can do long-term. So I just reach out when I need help. But I feel like he's helped me the most in a lot of different ways, whether it's suggesting different approaches or pointing out things that I do that I don't even realize, you know, like, and just saying it in a different way or 
like maybe I've been told it before or whatever, like the main thing I think that has stuck out over the years is like, I always want a hundred percent perfectionist, whatever. He's like, maybe sometimes you just ask for 80 and, and you don't get yourself in this trouble, you know, or things like that, you know? So just needing that outside perspective sometimes is really what gets you the farthest. So I would say for me, it's been Jess, but unfortunately he's moved now. So I'm kind of back on my own, <laughs> but yeah, just some, find somebody like that that you can ask those questions to and just be raw, but be willing to hear the tough stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've been with Kendra Weiss for over 15 years, meaning in and out taking lessons. She's had two of my horses in training. And I echo what Lindsay says about finding your person you feel comfortable with. You know, Kendra has never said to me, get off and let me fix it. Cause she knows I'm a DIY person. I like to do it on my own. I keep pretty tight control over my horses, no matter what. So, you know, you got to find that person who's going to teach you how to teach your horse, not someone to teach your horse that, you know, that can't teach you how to do it. You know, and I think probably all of us DIY people have found that person that, that can teach us from the ground how to teach our horses and maintain them. That's been the last 15 years. Of course, prior to that, you know, I've found had other trainers that have definitely helped me along the way. But as far as long term, she's been the longest with me. Did you attempt to reach out to anybody else before you guys found your people, you know, your quote people that are willing to work with you? Or was that the initial years ago, you didn't have any problem establishing that relationship? But I guess my ultimate question is, is how difficult was it to find somebody that was willing to work with you on a kind of you know, here and there basis. So for me, like finding Jess wasn't hard. He'd shown in our area, had clients and had gotten to know him, you know, just in passing and talking. And so then when I reached out, I, at the time, my first start was to to have him start a cult for me. And then it just kind of escalated from there. And it's not a, it wasn't ever a consistent relationship. Like I might go three or four years before I reached out, but he would always take my calls, always take my challenging situation. And there were times it wasn't always challenging. And so it just kind of escalated, I guess. And then I could be like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Could I come out and just ride? I have some questions on things or whatever. And I'd come out and we'd go over my specific situation. But so no, it wasn't difficult. I guess prior to that, you know, just growing up through the years, we did have, you know, local people that when we first started out that just kind of took you under their wing that kind of helped. And I think that was probably the most helpful, you know, when, when you're first getting started, things you just don't know, but just, yeah, just finding those, your people, like Megan said, that will help you no matter what. I was kind of late to taking lessons from Kendra. Megan was already with her before I came back into showing. And for the first couple of years, I didn't, I just went up and watched Megan take lessons and asked a lot of questions. And, you know, she was always willing to answer, you know, sometimes we do group lessons with her, you know, full-time training clients. And sometimes it'd be just us as we progressed on. She's always been really great to work with my schedule. So sometimes I drive from Iowa straight to Kendra's and Megan meets me there with the horses. She's always been very super flexible, which I really appreciate with my job of being able to fit in like an early afternoon on the weekday so that I can drive back to Iowa after my lesson so I can get back to work for the next day. So I guess, Kendra, I took a clinic, the Missouri Junior Club. 
had her come and put on a clinic. This has been, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And so I signed up and went and rode that clinic and had a great time and learned a ton. And at the end of the clinic, I asked her if, and I only live an hour from her, if I could come up and take lessons. And that's kind of how it all started was through lessons for a year. And then the horse that I, Stifler, he needed to be taught how to change leads. And I knew at that point that you can really mess one up if you don't know what you're doing, teach them to change leads. So I was going to a professional. And so she took him over that winter and taught him to change leads and then been with her ever since. So do you guys take regular lessons or is it just when you have issues come up? I mean, I guess kind of like how much are you interacting with your trainer when you go to shows? Do you stall by yourselves? Do you stall with anybody? Do you haul your horses yourselves? All of that. Yeah. So initially 15, 16 years ago, I went every other week for a lesson, whether I was having issues or not. And I needed a lot of help. I'm not going to lie. Every time I learned a ton and Kendra does quarter horses and we do paints. So Sabrina and I, we have our own truck and trailer. We go up and down the road ourselves. If we go to NSBA world or if she's at paint world, you know, we'll either stall with her or if we may have stalls on our own, but we'll, you know, if she has time, we'll pay for lessons and whatever. But, you know, especially big shows, we usually try because the patterns luckily now are released earlier than they used to. You just got them at the horse show. But now they're released early enough that even if she can't go to the horse show with us and be there, we try to go up ahead of time and lesson at her house and lesson on the patterns. So that's how we do it with her. What about yeah, you, I don't think? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> not been able to be as regular as Megan. I'm 99.9% on my own, almost like, pretty much 100%, unless I have that trouble situation where I've sent a horse or once in a blue moon when I wanted to go ride with Jess. But yeah, pretty much I'm all on my own. I don't have, even when I would go to his, it was just over two hours away to go there. So, you know, it takes a lot of coordination to haul in for those things. So no, so I do a lot just on my own. How often are you ladies getting to ride then? If you're at home and DIYing it, how often are you riding? I, in the summer, sometimes get to ride one weekend a month or at horse shows. Megan does not ride in the winter. So if it is not above 40, because we do not have an indoor where we board, she won't even go out and watch me. So, and we have a lot of young horses right now. So nothing you really want to throw a leg over. I did get to ride twice last weekend, which was really exciting. So I got to ride in January. If it's nice, the one weekend in February I get to go down, then I'll get to ride then. So once or twice a month, if it's nice and we're not at shows, if it's a if it's during show season like April, I will probably just meet her at the shows and start riding on Friday night and hope it all works out on the end. <laughs> I also do a lot less lessons than Megan does just for my distance. Lindsay. Yeah, I ride pretty religiously six days a week. We do have an indoor, so I do ride all winter long. It's not heated or insulated, so it's it's still pretty cold here in Iowa. If I have a broke horse, I may ride a little less in the winter, but typically I have young ones that are still needing to learn things, so I I pretty much ride year-round. Lindsay's the diehard of the group. <laughs> <laughs> I ride almost every day starting about March 1st until probably November-ish, but once the weather... I am a cold-blooded person, and if the wind's blowing a little bit and it feels less than 40 out, I'm not getting on these things because I try to do everything not to get bucked off. 
and mine, I put a lot of pressure on them throughout the summer and the fall when I'm writing and they don't get a lot of breaks. So I like to let mine have a few months off in the winter. That's not to say I don't go see them every day. I do. I go out and feed. I brush them. I look at them. I just don't get on top of them. I think that kind of brings up the natural question of what do you guys actually do for jobs or work? I'm probably the least interesting job of all three of us here. (laughs) I'm a senior client service manager at Principal Financial Group. So I administer pension plans, make sure they follow IRS and DOL regulations and fun stuff like that. So regular you know, and not nine to five, obviously we adjust those hours for the horse show life, but yeah, you know, I have to be here. I service clients. So it's not, I can go play in the barn and work in the evenings kind of situation here all day. I'm probably right along the same lines as Lindsay, as far as job interesting goes, I'm a healthcare auditor. My job does allow me to start working at six in the morning. So I work six to two thirty. Most days I flex a little bit. So that means usually I can be at the barn riding by three. And then, you know, depending on the day, that also allows me in the summer when it's super hot, you know, I can start as late as 9.30 in the morning. I can go out at five in the morning and ride those things when it's hot out and then work from nine to 6.30 or however many that eight hour, eight and a half hours is for that day. So I do have flexibility in my job that way. So I'm a forensic scientist for the state of Iowa. Primarily, I do DNA work, and then I'm also on their crime scene response team. So I'm typically a 410 hours, which has allowed me to actually be able to horse show, but I am a laboratory-based nerd that pipettes a lot. So I do have to be in the office, very little remote work. And then when I'm on call, I'm on call for seven days in a row, every six to seven weeks, and I can't be more than an hour away from the laboratory. So I'm a little more limited on my flexibility. They've been really great. And so far, no one has made me have to leave a large show to go do a work commitment. I have done a phone deposition in my car at NSBA World. I've done a few things like that. They tried to make me do something at the World Show a couple of years ago. And I was like, it's too hot in Fort Worth. You're going to hear the overhead announcements. Can we just continue the case? And so luckily, they did take a continuance and decided to do it the next week. So my supervisors and management is very good about trying to make sure that work doesn't invade on horse show time. It's gotten a little worse because I'm the technical leader as well, but usually I can pop in on my phone and be okay. So that's my job. That sounds very intriguing. She gets the award for the most interesting job. I think by far, I think by far on everyone we've interviewed, that's very out of the ordinary for us horse folk. So. That's awesome. I'm assuming you enjoy it then. Yeah, I love my job, but my job comes with quite a bit of stress. And so horses are kind of my big stress reliever. So if it really is not fun and horse show riding, if horse one ever becomes where it is causing me as much stress as my job and that, and I'm not enjoying it, I'll have to find something else. Because as Lindsay knows, I'm kind of all in when I'm in Iowa and my work, and then I leave town and I'm all in my horse shows and being with the horses and my sister. But um, occasionally, Lindsay sneaks me out for dinner on a Friday night. Yep. <laughs> Make her be social. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys touched on you've taken lessons and had clinics and kind of done it all in the past as far as your learning curve. But I guess my specific question would be like, how valuable do you think it is to sit and watch warm up pens at shows? Tremendously valuable. Like, I feel like that is where I have learned the not I want to say the most, I guess, because one on one, you can ask your specific questions for your situation. 
But I've learned so much from studying warm-up pens, just listening while you ride, even when you're out there riding, if somebody's getting a showmanship lesson or drilling on a horsemanship, whatever, even the pleasure, whatever, just listening to those things. And it may not be something that applies to you right now, but it may be something you have a horse in the future and you're like, oh, I remember they were struggling with that. I wonder if that will work on this particular situation. And so just always taking all that in for me has been tremendously valuable. Agreed. That's the best free advice you can get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it literally costs you nothing to get up if it's in the, most of the time in the middle of the night or, you know, on a Friday, I have a horse that traffic has been an issue for him. And so I just go and sit in the corner. I don't sit on the rail. I sit in the corner where no one so I'm not in the way, but just sitting for hours on him, you can observe and learn so much. It's all about observation. I don't think I have anything else to add to that, but I do watch a lot and you can learn a lot. And even standing there visiting with someone at the rail, you can still, I'm a great multitasker, I feel like. So I will occasionally be like, oh, hang on a second. Let me figure out what they're doing. <laughs> so always watch, listen, any place you can be, whether it's the smallest show or the largest show, you can learn a lot. If nothing else, you can always learn what you don't want to do. Oh, yeah. You can absolutely (laughs) learn that as well. (laughs) You know, and I'll take it one step further. You know, everyone has iPhones or your phones that video or your iPads or whatever. You know, you find that one person you really look up to or they're rocking it out all of the time. Don't be afraid to go video them doing a pattern while they're showing because you can slow-mo that stuff and watch it and you might pick up that one thing like footwork and showmanship or a you know it can be anything to be like and then you know this is what I always do I always watch it and I'm like I'm gonna go home and try that and I do and I try it you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't or you might have to modify it but video for me is the cool tool to have that we didn't have 20 years ago. I agree and online streams, you know, watching those Mm -hmm. high level shows. To me, I make it a priority to watch those, you know, the finals for sure to study those and see what people are doing. And obviously you don't see the behind the scenes training that went into that, but you can see the end goal. And that helps you kind of like work backwards to what do I need to work on to get there in addition to watching those warm-up ends. You guys have one more thing. YouTube is great. I've been on YouTube and you can Google anything and it's not even I don't even watch a whole lot of videos that like horsemanship and showmanship, but I branch out and like, like I've watched a reining video. And then I use that to teach, you know, some of the exercises this person had on YouTube to teach my horsemanship horse how to spin, you know, and it's, it's little things like that. Like I try to think outside the box, like some of the stuff I watch and I'm like, but some of the stuff I'm like, Oh, that's kind of new. I'm going to go try that. And it actually, some of that stuff's pretty handy and it works. So. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Watching other disciplines can definitely help you change things that you're doing with your own. So Fergie, our all-time fancy mare, had a huge, it was hard to sit her trot. I watched a lot of classical hunt seat ec riders for the hunter jumper world and dressage to try to figure out how to get my hips open to not, because there's a whole lot of me bouncing around in a bouncy sitting trot. But I'm like, how do all these people, I mean, the horses have way more impulsion than what we have, be able to sit and look pretty. So I watched a lot of YouTube. They were all free, like, and they're from different countries and it may be a little, it's fun to listen to their different language, but different, those exercises that have been helpful to kind of, if you can't see what you need in the warm-up pen or isn't getting you there, definitely branch out. Good advice for sure. Do you guys have any more advice on 
let's say other DIY competitors trying to like balance, you know, work, paying for their horses, going to shows and what that kind of looked like for you. Did you guys develop any type of routines or what's ended up working out the best for you and your horses? You know, I think the first piece of advice I give anyone, we're DIYers, give yourself some grace. You're not professionals. You have other stuff going on in your day. You have to work. Most people have to work a nine to five job or whatever. And you do horses on the side because it's fun and it's your hobby. So don't sweat the small stuff. If you have something that blows up and you can't ride your horse for a few days, it's no big deal. Trust me, your horse probably really doesn't care because they just soon eat hay and not have to work very hard. So give yourself some grace. Now, that's not to say that you need to be self-motivated, but that's my first piece of advice. The other piece of advice as far as budgeting, and again, I'm an auditor slash I have an accounting degree, so I'm very numbers oriented. As soon as my show season's over for the year, like 2022, our show season was over the end of October-ish. I have an Excel spreadsheet. I have it for every year. I've had it for probably 10 years. I sit down and I budget out the next year. Sabrina and I, we talk about what horse shows we want to go to for the next year, like for 2023. We put them on our tentative list. And then I go back and look and see how much money I've spent that year, the prior year or the year prior, but however, how much I spent to get to that horse show. And then I put it in a Excel spreadsheet and I figure out how much money I need to start saving because the winter months are for me months where I'm not spending money on horse shows. So that extra money I can put away. And that's what I do. I put it in a horse show fund. And so then when I start the year, I'm not behind on expenses. I have that money saved. And then be fluid and flexible, you know, like don't as DIYers, you know, money can be tight, right? Don't get yourself in a spot where you have spent too much money. Meaning, you know, I always tell Sabrina, there's always going to be another horse show. If you need to skip a horse show because your car had to go into the shop and it cost you $2,500 to fix it, that's okay. You still have your horse. You can go to horse show the next month. So, you know, don't compare yourself to what everyone else is doing. Those are my pieces of advice. So we do sit down and think about what shows. I don't budget as tightly as Megan does for things. I do have a horse account because she pays for most of it. And then I send her cash through to that. So she probably knows a little bit more than what I spend exactly on the horse care end of it. And that obviously all my show entries, I know what I spend and gas to get to the shows. I say have a game plan for the year. Start with micro goals. This is what I want to do this year. It may be, I want to, it may be a state goal. It may be a national goal. It may be, I just want to go to the world show. Maybe this year isn't going to be a world show year. Figure out what your goals are and then try to map your show schedule around that. I know most people aren't in my situation where there's always plenty of work to do. So I work a lot of overtime if I have unexpected expenses that help me be able to afford something. Megan makes most of our show clothes and I've been showing in the same. I haven't had a new outfit, I think in like four or five years. I'm due for a few new ones if I can convince my sister that she wants to sew them. But there's ways to do it inexpensively. I first started when I came back to the breed shows with a $150 used utility jacket, I would say, that you could wear for showmanship and Western that I bought secondhand from the Missouri Youth Quarter Horse auction or vendor show that they had. They do that at all, Missouri Quarter Horse. You can pick up something there. Look on Facebook. 
you don't have to have the nicest. You need to have a good hat that is well fit, that is well shaped, clean boots, appropriate, well fitting pants and chaps that are the appropriate length, and a nice fitted shirt jacket. Don't think you have to go out and spend a lot of money on clothes. And the more money you spend on clothes, I think the heavier the showmanship jackets get, in case anybody wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> I don't have to run in my showmanship class, but even getting some of those, I've tried a couple used ones on, and I'm like, I can't do this. I will be sweating through this, and it will not look pleasant, but you don't have to break the bank on clothing. And I built up as time, so everybody jokes that my expensive tack is you can count in crime scenes I've worked because that's kind of my extra fun money for my fancy tax. So start small with a good, clean saddle. You don't have to go all the way to a Harris or Blue Ribbon right away. A text hand will work. You don't have to have silver on it, just a clean tack. You don't have to have the Harris or Kathy show halter, but that may help the budget. So some years it's just not in the budget for new tack or clothes. Yeah, I agree. Budgeting, I do. I'm not as detailed as these ladies are. As far as how much I've spent, I probably don't want to know, but I do have a separate account where I put, you know, a certain amount from my, you know, I would say my life funds. I don't let the, you know, the horse showing affect my life. So to say, like when it, like the car situation, if it comes down to that, obviously we're going to fix the car and we're not going to go to a horse show. So I do keep separate money when that money's out. I, I won't be going to any more horse shows. I do try to be mindful about the shows I go to, to make sure I'm getting, you know, the most bang for my buck. I want to go where there's potential for the most points, you know, going and showing by yourself doesn't really, it, you know, it doesn't sound fun. So why would you want to put your money into that? Just being mindful of those things. Same thing along the lines of clothes. I wore the same showmanship jacket for 10 years. Uh, you know, when I was reserved in 2019, I'd been wearing that jacket for almost 10 years. So just, you don't have to buy what's currently out there. You can wear the same thing. I try not to get too trendy in my clothes so that they last for that long time. And I'm not having to put money into those things that could be going to another horse show. So I guess that's how I, I kind of think about it. As far as like the prioritizing and finding enough time, obviously, you know, I ride six days a week. So for me, the horses are a priority. So I, I do choose to say no to a lot of other things because I make this a priority for myself. Obviously, there are days where it's just not going to work. Or there are things I can't say no to. And like Megan said, the horse will be fine. You know, you can wait and just make sure that, you know, if you don't have that ability to ride six days a week, make sure the rides you do get in are valuable and that you're focused and you have a goal for what you're working on and get those things done in that time you have. So I think all of you have started with very young horses or even raised some potentially, or bought them young. So how have you learned to start a horse kind of from scratch and bring them up? And how long did it take you to work with them to get them competitive on like a national or world show level? You know, I think it's all horse dependent. I will say, you know, the last two horses I've had, I've seen them, well, almost seen them be born there. I had their moms in full to them. So I've had them from day one. And so, you know, I think on that side, I'm pretty lucky. I guess, your horses will tell you how fast you can take them. You know, I think we have a pretty cool horse right now. My sister and I, we actually end up sharing for other reasons we weren't intending to. 
you know, but he was three and he was out doing the all around stuff this past year at the world show and was neck reining and, you know, as a superstar, but I've had others that, you know, are, are slower. And so, you know, I, I take it at their own speed, but every day I handle them, meaning from the day they're born or the day I get them, I'm either handling them for showmanship manners. You know, I treat everything as a stepping stone to be a good season show horse. Cause I think when you start establishing those boundaries and building those building blocks up, it makes the more technical stuff easier to teach for the most part. And being a DIY, and I'm sure Lindsay can say the same thing, you know, your horse inside and out. I mean, there's no question, you know, what's going to happen. You know them, you know, like, and this is a pretty funny example. So I was showing one of my horses at the world show and I had her set up and someone said to me, why didn't you present her right away? And I taught her the showmanship. I said, because she was going to lift that front foot again. And if I stepped back and presented, I was going to get a penalty five or penalty 10 in that spot. And danged if she didn't lift that foot, she put it right back. But I knew she was going to do that. And so I think that's the cool part of being a DIYer because you know your horse inside and out and almost know what they're thinking. And so you can, you know, correct that, you know, you can wait for that stuff or correct that stuff, you know, right in the moment. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. Like, and I think that's, you know, one of the advantages of being a DIYer is knowing your horse like that inside and out and having that connection with them. And I think that's some of how, like you said, we've gotten these two-year-olds and and how soon do they get into doing these pattern things? I think because we know them and we know everything about them and we're the ones doing it, we can kind of move them a little bit quicker into some of those pattern classes. Like I made the finals with the sh- in the showmanship with a three-year-old on many occasions. And that was when the world show, you know, originally was back in June and July. And that's for us is not a lot of time to show up since we don't really get to start showing until April. So as far as like the timeline, how long it has taken, it really, again, just depends on the horse. Like Megan said, they will tell you, but I tend to like that end of the three-year-old year into four-year-old year starting to do all the pattern stuff. I'll do showmanship earlier in the year, but as far as the showman or the Ekin horsemanship later in the three into four, I would say is typically if, if I've gotten a two-year-old, that's just, you know, got like 30 rides on it for a timeline as far as progression goes. So last year, the 2021 world show was kind of a different world show for us because we had an injury to our all-around mare. We had my horse that is uh, our slow progression for most all-around. As a two-year-old, Megan was able to basically two weeks put, I showed her in the first showmanship class she'd ever been into beginning of second weekend in June. And I was top five at the world show in showmanship with her. So it can be done. Megan did lots and lots of showmanship. And I actually did get to make it down and work with her quite a bit. We did three or four day showmanship sessions every day of the world show where there's a will is the way. She took very easily to showmanship. She said that it was fine. Her riding has not been that case. And so we're kind of waiting on her. She might be my maiden five-year-old. Um, <laughs> knows? She's a little slow to the riding bus. Megan was able to do in-hand trail with her. Uh, She was not a lunge liner. They'll tell you. We tend to get them. I bought her as a a weanling. We like to do the lunge line and the in-hand trail if we can. She's my first ever lunge liner. She hated it. So we didn't make her do it very often, but they'll kind of tell you where they are. But she took to in-hand trail also just like a duck in water, but 
you know, our other yearling at the time that we had just did not care about in-hand trials. So we just didn't make him do it. You kind of know what they're ready for. Our three-year-old last year was kind of just a, we had no expectations. We'd be able to do what we did. And he was like, oh yeah, that's fine. I'm all broke show horse. The rail stuff, not so much, but for patterns, he's like, I dig this. I agree with everything. And and I'll say, you know, Lindsay riding six days a week, the more you ride them, and it doesn't have to be for hours a day, I think the quicker they progress. And so, you know, and while we have kind of a, you know, a unique where we could show our three-year-old, I'm on Lindsay's side, you know, most of the time mine are four or five before I jump into the patterns with them. We just have a really unique case right now, I don't know that I'll ever have another one like this one. So have you guys started with the young ones as a basically a byproduct of not being able to go out and buy like a made or finished horse? Or do you enjoy the process of teaching one or is it a combination of both? And for somebody that maybe doesn't have a big budget to go spend on a horse, it's kind of like, what tips would you have to give to somebody that, you know, is going to have to start from scratch or start with basics? Yeah, for me, it's, it is a, you know, typically a cost situation as to why I buy the younger ones. I also enjoy the teaching process. And I think that's where like a lot of my dedication and motivation comes from is seeing that progress. So yes, typically that is why I buy a young one. You know, obviously when we were younger, we had broker horses. <laughs> I would say brokering quotation marks. They were, you know, less expensive though, because we were just getting in. And I mean, it can be done even with a a broke horse that is not as expensive. Maybe it's not the fanciest thing in the world, but I think you just have to find their strengths and capitalize on those, you know, maybe they're not a real horse and that's fine. So work on, maybe they're very good in the, at turning. So focus on those turns for the horsemanship or transitions, get those tighter and crisper and, and things like that. There's ways if you're just starting out and you you don't have all that money to spend, just work on finding those assets that you have and capitalizing on those, really make those your focus and the time you do have to ride. Yeah, I mean, you know, both Sabrina and I, we grew up this way. We never, well, I take that back. When we first got, dad bought us like an old, like 20-year-old pleasure horse, you know, and I think that's great for beginner beginners. But as soon as we could start riding, we had young horses because that's what we could afford. You know, we could get a a nicer horse because it didn't have as much training for not as not as much money. So that's I enjoy the babies. I enjoy the yearlings. I enjoy the two year olds ish, meaning I don't ride them until they're, you know, I have a colt breaker that rides them for 30 days for me when they're safe for me to crawl on. They're not going to break in half. Then I'm cool with taking them on that way. They're sponges. They learn very quickly. I enjoy that a lot. As far as advice for people who don't have, you know, are trying to be budget conscious when buying a horse. If you're buying a horse for something to show and not necessarily sell in five years, you don't have to buy the flavor of the day bloodlines. Think outside the box. If you're buying one that's already got some rides on them, you know, go try them out. You never know what you're going to mesh with. You know, I've seen ranch horse bred horses win the horsemanship and the showmanship, the AQHA world show. I think in the youth, I maybe saw. So don't pigeonhole yourself in and think just because everyone tells you you need this X stallion's offspring, you know, don't think you have to do that. Now, with the caveat being that, yes, if you want to have this as 
an investment, I'll say in quotes, and you want to sell that, you're right. A flavor of the day type of breeding is going to probably sell easier than one that's off market, I'll call, unless the off market one has won a bajillion things. But I don't buy horses. My sister and I don't buy horses to sell primarily. We breed for replacement. So we need a new horse. We know we need to bring one up. We'll breed for one. That's not to say that we haven't bought them. But the running joke between my sister's eye is, I hate to say this, cheap ass bitches. <laughs> That's what we call ourselves when we start, <laughs> start you know, our look spend money. And that's not meant in a bad way, but it just means that, you know, we're very conscious to our budget. And, you know, so we we tend to lean on a little different methodology, I guess I'll say. Yeah. And I will say a horse doesn't know what it was bred to do. There are, it used to be in the day where we crossbreed a lot more often. First horse I came back showing, he's a pleasure bred slash halter bred. We joke that he is one of two out of that stud that has performance points because he had a big halter name stud. Think out, he shouldn't have been able to do what he is. He has pigeon toes. He's accomplished everything I'd want him to. He was He's great. He's still in the pasture, 21 years old, hanging out, being our babysitter, and occasionally has to work for three weeks a month to teach babies how to pony. But also be realistic with what you can put in. If you're a DIYer that doesn't feel like they're confident enough to bring in a baby along, maybe look at an older horse that you're going to have to do some maintenance on that you can live with. Or think about maybe doing a lease on something that's older that someone has in their barn. There's different budget-friendly ways. We like taking the babies up. I like messing with the babies. I don't like the yearlings as much as Megan does. I prefer them when they're under saddle and I can safely. Um, our colt breaker is phenomenal. He teaches them to be step stool broke, broke so I can get on and off on them. So in 30 days, I can crawl on them from a step stool. Everything we've had has been safe enough for even the amateur walk trot rider to start crawling on and riding as soon as they get back from him. So figure out where you are, maybe a green broke three or four, that's an off brand per se, not the popular bloodlines would be maybe a better fit, something that's already safe to ride and is green broke and maybe just not finished. Be honest with what your goals are and what, do you want to be a hunter or saddle rider? Do you want to be a Western pleasure rider? Are you good doing the patterns? Or maybe you're a ranch rider that likes to do more of that or Rainer. Really do soul search on what you want and then scour online auctions, word of mouth. We have some great friends that are always finding good deals. And don't be afraid to ask for a lesser price. A lot of times people on my, who's now four, that's the slow one, I got a good deal because they knew we were going to show. You know, if you're out there showing, sometimes people will cut you a little bit better deal because everybody breeds because they want to give a good product, but they also want to see it shown. The last thing they want to see is something that they raised and spent hours scaring over the bloodlines to make the perfect match to never, ever see a show pen. So if you are going to be one of those dedicated showers, you know, kind of look around where there's a will, there's a way. So on that note, with obviously the all the work that us equestrians put in, how do you guys, I know we touched on it a little bit, but how do you stay motivated and dedicated to our sport? And when you are facing we get questions a lot on burnout. Have you guys ever felt that way? And what did you do to overcome that? As far as like staying motivated for me, like I set goals for myself. And like I said earlier, not necessarily like I want to win this or whatever. Like I set goals for 
for me and my horse, like I want to a specific thing, like the showmanship, I want to back better, you know? And so I'll work on those specific things that I, I want to work on. So for me, the motivation comes from seeing, seeing that progression and getting better. Obviously the placings are super nice, but for me, I want to go in there and have the go, go, like I planned, like we practiced, like we've worked on and things like that. And that's what keeps me motivated and happy at the end of the day, more so than those placings. As far as burnout, I think we all go through that phase where we're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm putting in so much work, so much money, like, is this worth it? But usually it's for me, it's very temporary. Cause again, like you start to see the results, you know, and it may not be today. It may not come next week. It may not come next month, but you'll event if you just keep plugging away and stay focused and dedicated, those results will start to come where you're seeing the changes of all that work you've put in. And then you're like, Oh yeah, never mind. I'm good. <laughs> you know, like I'm seeing it now, so I'm ready to go, you know? So it, and then it gets to where you're, you know, excited to get out to that barn every day and then work on that. And I think in doing the DIY, you kind of have to have a never give up mentality like you. And so for me, it's like, even if it's been bad for two weeks, like, you know, I've had those trouble spots where it's like, here we go again today, but it's like, nope, today's going to be better. You know, you just kind of got to, to talk yourself up to get through it and be like, okay, here's what we're going to do different. We're going to focus on these things and today's going to be better. And it may or may not be, but then, you know, you reassess and reevaluate and go again tomorrow. And, and that's what really keeps me motivated and get through those you know, tougher times where you're just like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? This is so much work, especially when it's like 95 degrees outside and you're, you know, running around doing showmanship or whatever. But yeah, so that's where, that's what works for me. I agree with everything Lindsay said. You know, I think as a DIYer, if you're not self-motivated, you're probably, it's harder to keep going because you don't have someone there to continually poke you to be like, you know, if you need someone to tell you to go out to the barn and ride, you know, you have to have that within yourself to continue on as a DIYer, you know, and if I'm similar in, you know, I like to win. I think everyone likes to win. We wouldn't show and get judged if we didn't want to win. So that's the end goal for me, you know, but I agree. I like the little breakthroughs that you have when you're working, you know, the horses, like, you know, I don't ride in the winter, but over New Year's, we had 60 degree weather here in Missouri. And I was like, I'm riding. I haven't ridden in 45 days ish somewhere in there, but I'm going to go out and ride. And so I was riding. I was like, man, I haven't worked on a forehand turn in a while. I need to do that. Cause that was the thing that was missing in my stuff for last year to teach. Cause anyway, first day it was a train wreck. I was like, Oh my God, he's never going to get it. You know? And then I kind of stopped and I thought about it and I'm like, okay, what is he doing mechanically? You know, and I had actually I have at the barn, I have video cameras up because my mare fold last year. So we put them up for her, but I have one outside. And if I tipped it up, then you can see the arena and Sabrina has access to it. So she watches from Iowa sometimes on what I'm doing. She's like, hey, he's doing this or he's doing that. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And so then I was like, okay, don't get in a battle. And so I put him up and then I was able to ride the next day. And by the third day. Like he had it, you know, and I was like, oh my God, well, I don't have to ride the rest of the winter. I've got this. I'm <laughs> actually it's because it turned cold, but <laughs> that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, shoot. Okay. I got that figured out. So I think, you know, you have to really, as a DIYer, love your horse and love just 
just being out there and smelling your horse, for lack of a better description. You know, if you don't just want to be out there and crave being out at the barn, then, you know, it's a little little hard to reach your goals, I think. So for motivation, I am a absolute goal maker for different things, uh, for my job and for my hobby. So I probably have lists upon lists that drive my sister absolutely batshit crazy. But the thing that keeps making me is, especially as we transition to younger horses, is, okay, what was wrong with my last pattern in that class? Okay, the next show that has that maneuver, we're going we're gonna to fix that. Or, you know, I didn't like that. Just to keep working on that. I do stalk her at the barn an awful lot on the webcam, probably more than she knows. She occasionally gets a text that says, hey, I think you're done for the day. <laughs> we all need those. I, I need someone to do that. <laughs> yes, I've gotten the text. Find a spot and quit. <laughs> but it is nice if you can have, it doesn't even have to be somebody that's super knowledgeable at horses. I say one of the things that helps with motivation, I know Lonnie is at the barn sometimes with Lindsay, just having someone else to bounce it off or call a friend and say, gosh, I'm struggling with this. Also, I think we're all addicted to our horse show friends, to be honest. So that also motivates, like I'm missing my horse show friends. We still got a couple months before I get to horse show. I get to see Lonnie and Lindsay more and they let me come out to their barn and hang out occasionally. But really remember why you're doing this. And your horse doesn't care whether it goes to show or not. Go out and scratch on it. If you can't throw a leg over it, I come down a lot in the winter and don't get to, Megan says they get groomed the best because I'm the best groomer in the family because I will spend hours purring and I might also be the treat lady as well <laughs> but do what you can with horses stay motivated that way also horses aren't cheap so if you can't stay motivated I'm sure there's probably a cheaper hobby <laughs> can drop and leave but these are living breathing animals that have to eat and require you to support them like a child so if you're really struggling maybe take a step back I wouldn't sell everything lock stock and barrel but Maybe it's okay. And I've had a few friends go through this. They're actually with trainers is, you know, sell the current horse, keep all your tack and stuff, but take a couple years off and say, do you really miss it? If you're motivated and you really miss it, you will get another horse and you will stick with it. It's okay to take breaks. I took 10 years off. Now I got drug cooking and screaming back into the hobby. And now I'm addicted and want to go all the time, probably more than Megan actually wants to go down the road. Figure out your micro goals. I also, sometimes I was really struggling last year with my walk and showmanship. And I was like, check your scorecards. Look at your scorecards from last year. Those, those are free. That's some, you're already paying for someone's opinion. So, you know, one of my goals this year is to have my walk be a plus one all the time. You can video your competition. It's a great world. Video who's getting the plus ones in those areas. Use that as motivation. I mean, not in a bad way. You're, you don't want to beat them, but you want to you have your scores equal them. Because I always say, I don't want to beat my competition on their worst day. I want to beat them on their best day. And I'm always competing against myself, but I don't wish anybody else I show with to have a really bad go. That's not my personality. So maybe look at your old score sheets, looking at your world show scribe sheets. Okay, this is where I lost a lot of points. Okay, let's work on that. That's where my downfall is. Because without having a trainer, sometimes I think DIYers are like, they throw their hands up and I'm like, I don't understand why I'm getting beat. Also, go scribe. It doesn't have to be your breed. Go scribe. You will learn more by sitting there if you get a good judge. And I'm probably way too talkative as a scribe, but I ask questions. Or in between while we're doing that, I'll be like, why is that always like, and you can see why something is a plus one. Now, not all judges are equal. 
I like to obviously scribe for the more pattern oriented ones, but you can learn a lot from that. And maybe that's new motivation. If you don't show quarters, quarters show a lot more year round than the paints do. You can usually find an early spring quarter horse show and there every show is looking for volunteers, you know, go volunteer. And maybe if you need to take a break from showing, you volunteer for a year, go to the shows, ring stewards. There's not anybody harder than the people that put on workers than the people that put on the shows. And they're always seeking gate help, someone to run the, the cards. Maybe that's how you re-motivate yourself or at least get your horse show fixed until you can figure out if you're all in. You guys have been so insightful. I think this has been awesome. And I think we could talk for like another three hours if we <laughs> just kept rolling with it. Cause it's just, yeah, it's. Um, tremendous amount of knowledge and value. But one of my last questions for you guys is, I think a lot of times people think the DIYers are at a disadvantage, but really what are the, maybe the advantage or advantages you guys have learned of being DIYers? For me, I think like we spoke earlier that knowing your horse, I think is a huge advantage. Having that connection with them, I think really comes out in the show ring when you can almost predict, you know, everything that they're going to do. Obviously the extra practice time is never going to be a bad thing for, you know, when you, when you go into the ring, I mean, I guess I would say that's the biggest advantage to doing it ourselves. You also like at a show, you can practice when you want to, whenever, you know, you don't have to do it around somebody else's schedule or, you know, between other groups of clients or anything like that. You can practice when you want to if it's in the middle of the night or, you know, early in the morning, whatever works for you, you can do it. I mean, on the other hand, it's very hard because you have to make yourself do it. Nobody else is telling you be there at five in the morning. But I do think that that at the end of the day, there's nothing better than that, than knowing your horse like that and that connection that comes through. I think the connection and every one of our horses pretty much has the buttons in the same spot. So I guess for me, being a, a DIY with my sister, like, it is comforting to know that while my horse has been away from me and I haven't been down in a couple of weeks, the buttons haven't changed because ours are all tend to be very, very similar. The world show was a prime example. Um, we got down in the well and the three-year-old, the birds kept flying and we started rearing and, you know, I knew how to handle him because I had had him do that to me before. I saw a lot of other panic looks on everybody else's faces, but I think I was a little panicked because he was three, but as all the competitors around me were also getting freaked out by my situation. What wasn't the prettiest pattern? I did go in and, and get my pattern rode and he didn't rear in the pattern. And But I knew him well enough to know what I couldn't, couldn't do. You know, when stuff's about to go bad, like there's, you know, a twitch of an ear wrong and you're a DIYer, you know, I love that we set our own schedule. I don't do well in a crowded, packed warm-up pen. It's not my fave thing. So we just find times to practice and run patterns when it's not packed because of that. So with a trainer, I wouldn't really have that option. You have to practice when they're around or when it works with their group. So that's another benefit. And you decide, I don't have anybody telling me I have to show. I, You know, like maybe it's more the youth that have that when they have a trainer and their parents saying that they have to show. But, you know, if I'm not feeling ek today, which is usually not my case, but maybe Megan's, no one's going to make her show it. It's whether you want to or not. There's no, if you have to scratch that day, you have to scratch that day. There's no really anybody else you're letting down where I feel like if you're in a training program and there's also no one telling you, you can't show that. So we're notorious for probably getting ratted out a few times on maybe showing something in trail before 
other people thought it was ready just because I was like, oh, it's an easy enough pattern. We'll try it. And or a few of our horses have made it around the barrel patterns a couple times, but no one really there. You can kind of, I mean, in the day, it's your horse and your money, but we don't really have someone being like, oh, no, it's not ready. We have a lot of control. I think sometimes the trainers, you don't have a lot of control over whether your horse is ready or not or whether you get to show it or not. And, you know, I got the horses to enjoy and for me to show, not for someone else to. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is like, it's just a sense of accomplishment. And I know that horse inside and out, I don't have to guess at it because you can read their body language when you spend and, and almost hear what they're thinking when you spend so much time with them. I'm also a pretty big control freak when it comes to horses, my horses, meaning like I like to know what's going on and I like to be in control of their feeding program and what they eat and when they get turned out, you know what I mean? I So that works well for me, not that I've ever had any issues when I've sent mine, you know, away to a training program, but I definitely keep track of them and check in on them. But I just, to me, like when I've done it all myself with help, of course, with lessons and stuff like that, I hate to always say myself because there's always people that are in your crew that that support you and help you however they can. You know, it just feels like a a huge accomplishment. And I think that's one of the reasons why I stay in the horses is because I enjoy the horses. I enjoy the their companionship for lack of a better a better description, you know, and the, the competition with them. I, if I had a horse at a trainer's 12 months of the year, that's just not in my my makeup. I probably wouldn't be in the horses. So that's, I love the horses for the horses, not necessarily the wins. You know what I mean? Like I can tell you, I love all my horses the same, whether they've went out and won a world championship or if they're just a nice packer at the barn that, you know, can pony, teach babies to pony or whatever the case may be. Now, that's not to say I don't have days that I growl at them, but, you know, overall, you know, I'm in it because we love our horses. I think I'm good on questions. I know we've taken a lot of your ladies' time today with our technical issues that hopefully all of our listeners will get to bypass in our editing. But I do want to say and just do a shout out for Jenna here. She has a great group for the amateurs on Facebook called Add More Legs. She has put together event pages for all the DIY amateurs to hopefully meet together at shows. So I know she wouldn't throw that in there. So I wanted to give her a shout out on her Facebook stuff. It wasn't my idea. Well, Jesse Cop was a member yes. of the group and she suggested a way for DIY amateurs to be able to connect at shows. So credit really goes to her, but there are event pages in that group so everybody can connect. And if you guys want to stall together or just, you know, have a beer or whatever, that's kind of what we're aiming on. Just increase camaraderie in the sport. But yeah, this has been so great. Ladies, thank you so much for your time today. And sorry, we went over time a little bit, but really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Shout out to your Facebook group, Jenna. I know, you know, I've been a little more active the last 30 days or so, but, you know, I certainly think that that has opened the communication for the DIYers that don't necessarily feel comfortable face-to-face, maybe the more. I don't know. Yeah. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to do that. And Sabrina, thank you for your time. Lindsay, thank you for your time. Good luck this year, ladies, on all your endeavors. And we like to remember people to like and subscribe 
follow, share the podcast, please. And for sure, if you have DIY friends and people that aren't familiar with the podcast, please share this episode because it's going to be valuable for a lot of different people. I listen every Monday. (laughs) We love to hear that. (laughs) Yes, yes, we do. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Have a good good rest of your Sunday. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.